welcome to the New Life Fellowship podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, we've come to a, a significant passage now in our study in this book of Ephesians. And, and Paul's beginning to wrap up the letter. And he's, he's, he's also just wrapping up this, the section he's going through. And so he's, he's coming to a summation, really, of what he began at the beginning of chapter 4, where he, he transitioned from understanding who we are in Jesus to now how we live, how we behave, how we act, and how we walk, what that means and what that looks like. And and so now he's wrapping up this this section and again the book with a with a conversation on spiritual warfare. Now my experience has been that that most believers uh, have don't have a very good grasp on this topic, and and they end up being often in one of the extremes where we live in ignorance and in denial, or we go to the other extreme where we think there's a devil behind every sneeze. And, and I mean that literally because that's why people would say, bless you after you sneeze because of fear that a demon would somehow enter your body. And so we've, we've gone you know, to each of those extremes and I find most people live somewhere in that, in that realm. So my, my hope today, and I think this is what Paul's hope was in, in writing this passage, is to inform you and I about the battle to have an understanding of who we're up against, who we're not up against, and, and what, what that battle is going to look like. So I'm, I'm calling this message in a, in a note to Josh. I've got a title and a subtitle, Josh. Hope you're proud of me. But the title is Know Thy Enemy. And the subtitle is Knowing Who We Battle and Understanding How We Battle. And so we're going to jump right into it because there's a lot of ground we've got to cover this morning. Uh, so here's the outline. We're going to know first who is not our enemy and then who is our enemy and how do we recognize his attacks. And then we're going to have a real brief discussion on, on what is our response with more to follow in, in the upcoming week. So anyways, let's read our passage and then we're going to jump in. So Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 12. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're, we're going to get into it tonight or this morning. We're going we're gonna to really start to look at who our enemy is. And, and to some detail. And so, Father, uh, it's critical that we understand who our battle is against and who it's not. And, and it's real confusing because that's what our enemy is trying to do. He's trying to throw this big fog across it so we don't recognize it for who he is. And so I'm trusting you, Jesus, right now to, to provide to me the, the words, the thoughts, the ideas, your truth, so that we, your people, know how do we fight. How do we achieve this victory? How do we recognize who it is we're really up against? And so we're trusting you to be a teacher, trusting to speak through me, but also to speak to those who are, who are watching right now, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we love you. And, and we just celebrate the fact that you're with us right now. In your name we pray, amen. Well, let's start with who's not our enemy. 
See, what's interesting here is Paul's just kind of wrapped up uh, addressing a number of different key relationships. He's talked about marriage. He's talked about parenting and children. He's talked about, for our environment, the workplace. And, And chances are, if you're struggling with someone, it's probably in one of those groups. I mean, you could have added friends to it, but chances are it's your family, your kids, your parents, or at work. Chances are that's one of the groups that you're going to be struggling with. And, and it's often easy to blame someone in those groups uh, for your misery, for your lack of fulfillment. In fact, a lot of people who come for counseling are coming to counseling because of those reasons. They don't like their spouse. They don't like their parents. So they're struggling with growing up with their parents and, or there's problems at work and so forth that they just don't feel fulfilled in their job. And so they often look to those things as the reason why they're struggling, that, that these people are blocking my happiness. And so they're coming, hoping to find a way that they can fix that, that they could, they could address that. But here's the danger in that kind of a thinking, that it turns my sight onto the world. Thinking that they're the enemy, I end up attacking them and I miss who the real enemy is. And so we start seeing that in this world with all this division that is happening in our world where where we always are blaming the other side, politically, uh, socially, culturally, and so forth. But also within our marriage and spouses turn on one another. Parents versus children, friend versus friend. But it's especially dangerous within the church because we begin to attack and fight against those who are actually meant to fight alongside us, to fight with us. And so those divisions within a church or churches against church, uh, all that kind of stuff is really just friendly fire. All of that is playing into the enemy's plans, the enemy's attacks. So we're going to try to understand who is our enemy, who actually is our enemy. So let's, let's look at verse 12 again. And and, and where Paul says for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, I think it's important to say that, that Paul's not listing here a number of different enemies, that, that there is an order, uh, that there is, you know, uh, uh, logic, I guess, to Satan and to his, to his army, much like we would see order and rank within the heavenly armies and so forth. But I don't think that, that he's listing separate foes here. To, to, to put that on the verse would really be speculation on our own part. And instead, and I agree with most commentators here, they're saying what Paul's doing is rather than listing who these enemies are, he's giving us insight into their character and into their nature, their nature, that they are rulers, that they have dominion and authority over a realm, and they have spiritual powers, dark powers in this world. And those powers, they are wicked, they are evil, and they are spiritual in nature. And so he's, he's given us an idea of who we're up against. And that's important because now our response to that is going to have to follow suit. So Paul writes to the the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, though we walk in the flesh, though we live in this world and we we live in this body, we do not war according to the flesh. I mean, we don't fight with our own strength and our own power. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not of this world, but they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So it's a spiritual war. 
And therefore, our weapons need to be spiritually powerful, divinely powerful. Ultimately, it's Jesus. Ultimately, it's God and his might. And we're going to see that over and over again as we go forward. But it is a war. And it's a war with an enemy that is intelligent. See, some people think of the the enemy we're up against as like a virus, right? So you think about, you know, COVID-19 and and the the virus that that is, you know, it's not intelligent in the sense that it's not it's not picking its its victims, you know, on purpose. It's not strategic. It's just simply just does what it does. It's programmed in its nature to just, you know, infect different people. It doesn't care who it infects, it just goes after them. So there isn't an intelligence behind what it's doing. And, and yet what these verses are telling us about our enemy is there is an intelligence that it's, it's structured, it's thinking, it's planning, it's strategic in how it's, how it's acting. They're not just random attacks. They're with a purpose. They're with, they're with intent behind it. And, and so evil's not just an idea. It's a very real force. And these are very real creatures, very real personalities that we're facing or we're dealing with. Now, my friend Preston Gillum, he's, he's kind of helped me see that there's some parallels that we can draw between the, the, how spiritual warfare is happening and how typical warfare or warfare that we experience in this world happens that is going to function in a similar way. So let's kind of compare that because there's a number of different ways that war may take place. So the first one is this overt war. That's where two nations go up against each other, where multiple nations fight each other. And so this would be examples of, of World War I or World War II or the Korean War or Vietnam War and so forth, right? Where, where two groups are, are very clearly in battle with one another. And that's happening in a spiritual realm as well, where there is an overt war between the armies of God and the armies of Satan. Where, where the demons and the angels are fighting each other. We see that in, in the book of Daniel, where, where an angel, a messenger of God, was, was pro- prohibited from talking with Daniel because he was battling with another demon, with another fallen angel. And so there's, there's that sort of thing. We see how, how uh, Moses and, uh, sorry, um, uh, I think it was Gabriel or maybe it was Michael and, uh, and Satan were fighting over Moses's body. And so there's these battles, these fights that go on within the spiritual realm. And so there's an overt war. There's, there's a guerrilla warfare. And so guerrilla warfare is where uh, one's army is, is much smaller, but they're not organized. And, and that's what makes it difficult. They're not all showing up in their uniforms and, 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 you know, operating in a very clear strategic way or even fighting by rules. Instead, they blend into the surroundings. They blend into the crowd and they pop up. And maybe that's with terrorist activities and, and so forth. And so ISIS might be an example of something like that. And, and that's happening in the spiritual realm as well where there, there isn't a necessarily identifiable army, where, where the demon doesn't show up wearing the, the uniform and the colors of, of the enemy. Instead, he just pops up and, and it's seemingly out of, blue, out of the blue, we might experience these, these demonic attacks or the flesh out of the blue may suddenly bombard your mind with all kinds of, of evil thoughts or shameful thoughts and so forth and then disappeared almost as quickly as they came. And so there's that, that nature of guerrilla warfare that we see in the spiritual realm. However, those would be more overt forms where you see them happening. I think the more, more deadly or more dangerous ones are the ones that are covert. And I say they're dangerous or more deadly because we don't often recognize them as for what they are, for the attacks that they are. 
And I think that's especially the case within Western civilization when it comes to the spiritual warfare is that the, the devil and his enemy, they don't present themselves in a very obvious way. They're trying to fly under the radar. And so one example of that would be state level warfare. And what I mean by state-level warfare, this is the stuff that's going on with spies and espionage, right? So think about all those great movies we love to watch during the Cold War, right? Where, where the CIA is battling the KGB and going back and forth and, and so forth. And, and, and what they're doing here is they're either trying to sabotage infrastructure, they're stealing plans, they're trying to, to, to send false information, trying to confuse the enemy. All that's happening on a state level. And the same is true in a spiritual way, where, where our enemy is going to be, in a very covert way, attacking God's infrastructure. And that's the church. And, and really to attack the church, to undermine our role, to, to undermine our message, to discredit us in some way, uh, to, to uh, spread false information about who God is, about who, who we are, uh, about what our, who the church is and what we're called to be, uh, or even who other people are. Who, who those neighbors are and the people in the world or the people who we, we don't necessarily agree with. And he's spreading all this false information to turn us against those people. Another big one is propaganda. And propaganda is a huge way to, to fight a war. And, and so this would be the, the media and how the media might be used, particularly in, in where the media is, is state run, like we see in, in China or what was in the USSR and, and how the media would be used to uh, to promote, to, to propagate the government messages and branding. Uh, North Korea still does this, for example. But during the Cold War, we would see this. And, and, and it wasn't just necessarily the media. They would have, you know, key people. And, and the communists, they, they recognized what they, they had these people, what they call useful idiots. Isn't that a great term? And these people weren't necessarily, um, you know, on the payroll or being directed by, by the USSR, but what they were doing is they were defending the USSR to America, to Canada. And so they would often be, you know, in, in positions of some kind of power or university or professors, and they would be promoting all the benefits of, of communism and so forth, but they were acting on their behalf and they were spreading that message of, of propaganda. And again, that's a big one that's happening within the church, within Christianity, where this propaganda is coming from, from our enemy, and it causes us to, to doubt the cause, to doubt who we are and what we, how, the value we play in this world. And so, for example, this message that we hear, Christians are all hypocrites, that, that churches only want your money, that they're, they're, they say one thing and act differently and, 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 and so forth, or, or messages to create division. You know, our church is better and we do it right and, and they believe wrong things and they're, they're sub-level and they don't, they're not important enough or, or just the whole idea of mistrusting leaders uh, with, within churches and, and mistrusting authority in general. And so all of that propaganda that's being spread by our enemy is simply meant to, to weaken us, to, to cause us to, to doubt, to question, to pull back. When the reality is that Jesus says, you know, because he is the light and that light is in us, we become the light to the world. And so why would you hide this light? And yet that would, that's what this propaganda does. It either discredits us or it causes us to pull back. And so we're afraid to share the gospel. We're afraid to evangelize. And yet we've got the answer in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're afraid to share that with our friends and our loved ones and our neighbors. 
Another way the, that warfare takes place is you entice your enemy to defect or to betray their own people. And, and so we, we see this where, you know, you're trying to get a turncoat and that's happening, you know, again, during the Cold War, you'd see that America trying to get US, uh, Russian defa- defectors and, and, or the USSR trying to get American defectors or, or to turn on yourself and become a double agent and so forth. And, and we see that again in the spiritual realm, you know, Satan was able to do that with G- with Judas. He was trying to get that with Peter, right? Where Peter was trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Because Peter, you are trying to prevent what God was trying to do. You are being used as a pawn of Satan. He did with Adam and Eve, where we got Adam and Eve to turn on God. And he even tried to do it with Jesus in the wilderness, trying to get Jesus to bow down and worship him as God and turn his back on his father. And so he's, he's going to do that with you and I, where he's going to try and turn us against other Christians, other, other loved ones. And, and so I hear that in people where they say, I, I, I just can't stand Christians. I can't stand around them, be around them and so forth. And, and that's the work of the enemy, trying to deceive us, trying to, to, to get us to defect. Another kind of warfare is what we see is terrorism. And, and so we saw this in 9-11. We'd see this in maybe, you know, blowing up malls or, or random shootings and so forth. And the whole point behind terrorism is that it's trying to send a message. And the message is you are not safe. Doesn't matter where you go. Doesn't matter where you are. You are not safe. And so that, again, is going to happen in a spiritual realm in many different ways. It may be random attacks. It might be harassment by the demonic might even be nightmares where, where you just struggle to sleep and you're just suddenly have all these crazy, crazy nightmares that are just leaving you unsettled, leaving you kind of on edge and not feeling right, not feeling comfortable. And it's, it's just meant to throw you off. And then there are false flag attacks. What a false flag attack is where, <clears throat> where you attack under the guise of being the enemy. And, and so that false flag. And, and so maybe this is done to, to rise up a response to, again, fit into that propaganda, to create an anger, to, to, to cause something to, um, to provoke some kind of a response. And again, we see that within, within the spiritual realm where, where Paul warns us about the wolves that come in sheep's clothing. And, and so what ends up happening is these wolves in sheep clothing acting under the guise or the banner of Christianity can cause great damage. And, and so when I think about all the abuses that took place in the residential schools, for example, under, under so-called Christian leadership, and, and when you hear about the abuses, it, it's, it's very clearly there was nothing Christian about that leadership. That it was, it was, it was, it was demented. It was evil. It was wrong. It was horrible. But look what it's done. How much more difficult now is it for, for people of, of native or indigenous heritage to receive the gospel, to welcome someone coming with Christianity if they or, or a relative or a friend suffered under the residential schools abuses? And so those false flag attacks do an incredible job to discredit who we are as believers and, and, and who Jesus is in, in our world as well. And then lastly, and I think this one's maybe the most damaging of all the, the covert wars is psychological warfare. And, and so in psychological warfare, warfare, what you're trying to do is you're trying to break the will of the enemy. 
You're trying to soften their, their resolve or maybe even soften their, their, their edge so that they're not as strong, not as organized, not as powerful. And even maybe overwhelm them psychologically to the point where they just want to give up, where they just throw in the towel and they don't want to fight anymore. You see, if you soften that army, now they're easier to conquer. And, and, and they, they don't have that fight. And so we see this in, in spiritual realms where, where maybe, maybe they use sin. They tempt us towards sin and we, we give ourselves over to that sin, which produces now that shame and condemnation that they offer to us because of that sin. And, and now we're battling the guilt, the shame, and just the effects of sin, which is the experience of death. And so what ends up happening is our soul begins to feel thin begins to feel wearied and, and we begin to feel weak in the worst way. Or maybe we don't begin to trust our neighbors and, and we're, we're questioning about our neighbors and we're looking at them a little bit, bit shifty eye. And by neighbors, I mean, not just the person living next door to you, but maybe the other people in, in your church or your friends or your family. And, and so we begin to isolate and we withdraw and we don't trust one another. Or maybe what it does is it creates complacency where we just begin to get settled into our comfort zone, like what we see in the church of Laodicea, where they were neither hot nor cold, and, and yet they were naked and poor and weak, but they didn't know it. And so many Christians, they become, they become comfortable, especially in our Western civilization, not realizing what's going on and what's at play and what's at stake and what's, what we need to, to, to be fighting for because we're in a battle. This war, you, you don't go looking for it. You don't enter into it. There's, no, there's not even a draft. You're born into it. And whether we recognize it or not, it's happening. It's happening right now. And, and so some of the forms of these psychological warfare would be, for example, if you're feeling down, then he's just going to heap on more discouragement upon you. If you're doing well and you're feeling really good, then he throws pride at you and tries to get you to, to feel even better and, and more confident in your own abilities and your own self. There's a temptation towards immorality, but then there's a temptation towards religion and morality on the other side. He, he wants to introduce a standard to, that you and I can measure ourselves against, that we can measure our success. And, and if you're successful, then that produces the arrogance and condemnation towards other people, looking down your nose at them. Why can't they get it together? And then if you fail, then it produces that feelings of guilt and condemnation and shame and misery. Or maybe... He tries to make you feel bored and as the, you know, idle hands and all become the playground of the enemy. Or maybe, maybe he swamps you the other way and you become super busy and he just keeps throwing more and more at you, particularly the unimportant things. So you get so fixated in the, in the tyranny of the urgent, but unimportant and the, until the moment where everything breaks and you can't handle it anymore. Or, or maybe he's throwing disappointment at you and betrayal of other people. The loneliness and the isolation to cut you off from other people. Or maybe he's, he's invoking comparison through social media or, or through other friends to, to induce shame and disappointment. Either at yourself and your own failures or maybe even towards God. That God hasn't looked after you and blessed you the same way. Then there's the deception around the true nature of God, that either he's, he's not loving me, he's failing me, or he can never love me because 
Now it's deceiving about who I am. Where he's twisting the scripture. Did God really say, can we really trust him? Or twisting, twisting what others say. Did you hear what they said about you? Did they hear what they said about the situation? And we begin to, to interpret what's being said in the most worst and negative way. He will shame us with our memories, with our, our failures, our sin, both present or past, or maybe even a sin of others towards us. And somehow twist it to make it all about us and our fault and what that sin says about me. We'll attack our minds. We'll use the circumstances that we're experiencing as an attempt to distract, to overwhelm, and destroy. There are so many ways in which this psychological warfare is taking place, and it is happening often. And, and we need to be aware of that so that when it happens, hopefully we're in a fighting shape so that we can fight it off. That we can, we can, as we're going to see, stand firm and hold to what's true rather than embracing what our enemy is saying. All right, well, let's, let's take a look now at who our enemy is. So this, this passage tells us to stand firm against the devil, singular, but then tells us that there are rulers, plural. And I, and I think really there are three main groups that we could kind of isolate these enemies into. And, and the first being that there's, there's Satan and his fellow demons. Then there's going to be the world. And then there's the flesh. And they're all working together, I think, uh, at times. And there's overlap. And I don't think it's always critical to know who it is, although sometimes it can be helpful. But we're going to try to understand each of these in a little bit more detail uh, this morning. So we're going to start with Satan and his demons. Now, the word Satan is a Hebrew word, and it, and it literally means adversary, uh, but he goes by many other names. We often know him as, as the devil. That's the, the Greek word diabolos, and it, it means deceiver or slanderer. And so that's what we get to see him. He's a deceiver. He's a slanderer. He's a liar. Uh, another word that's often used is Beelzebub, and, and that's a Greek word that is, is given as a title of, of demons or a ruler of demons. But it literally means Lord of Lord of the Flies. Now we know where we get that book title comes from, or maybe even more literally, Lord of the Dung. Let that one sink in for a little bit. But on the other side, he was also known as Lucifer, which means the Morning Star. Or we see him in Genesis three as the serpent, or in Revelation twelve as the great dragon. Many names, many titles, all describing Satan. And he's much more than just a concept. He's much more than just a characterization of evil. He is an actual being created by God, an actual being. But he wasn't created as Satan. He wasn't created as this force of evil. Instead, he was created as a chief or as an archangel. <clears throat> and he was created very beautifully, it tells us in Ezekiel 28. And he was powerful. He was an anointed cherub, which was a very special angel. He had special closeness or access to God. But here was his problem. That wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to be, be at the top and a chief of angels. It wasn't enough to be close to God. Ultimately, he wanted to be God. And so in, in Isaiah chapter 14, the, the prophet Isaiah there, he gives us some insight, not just in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm of what was driving Satan. What was his thinking? And so beginning in, in verse 12 of chapter 14, it says, how, how you have fallen from heaven, <clears throat> O star of the morning sun, 
of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan wanted to be God. He wanted to be all powerful. He wanted to be above God. He wanted to rule God's creation. And, and so he, he invoked a rebellion. He started a coup and went to war. And there was a, there was a battle between Satan and, and his side against God and his angels. And, and Satan eventually lost and he's, he's thrust out. He's cast out of heaven. And we see this in Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, some debate, did this happen before Genesis 3 or did it happen as a result of Genesis 3? I, I don't know. I don't have a strong opinion one way or another. All I know is it happened, that there was a war, there was a battle and Satan has been cast out of heaven. And now he's here on earth and he's attempting to deceive the whole world. That's his goal. That's his, his major weapon is deception. But we also see here is he's not alone. That, that what we see now are these demons that were cast out with him. And so these demons were the one third of the angels that followed Satan. And so one, I mean, think about that. He was able to convince one third of all the, nation, all the angels to go against God and his angels. And so they went into this war and losing. Now they've all been cast onto this earth. And that's who we're up against. Now, Satan's not everywhere. We sometimes give Satan way too much credit. He is not God's opposite. He is not God's equal. God is God. Is God. There is no one like him. There is no one even close to him. There is God and then everyone else below. And that means Satan himself, as a created being, created under the authority of God, remains to this day under God's authority. That has never changed. We read about that in the book of Job, where he could not do what he wanted to do without God's permission. So he's still under that authority, but he's not everywhere. He's not all powerful. He's not all omnipotent and so forth. He's not even all knowing like God is. And chances are, if you've encountered something demonic, it's not Satan himself. Chances are it's one of his, his demons, one of his fallen angels that are coming against us. Now, here's the other thing about Satan and his demons is they're not the rulers of hell. I know that's how it's portrayed that, you know, hell is his kingdom and, and him and his, his, his demons, they are ruling and they're torturing people down there and so forth. And they get great glee out of it. Not at all. Not at all. Hell was created for Satan and his demons. That's, that's what they're experiencing. And so they will become prisoners of, of hell and eventually be thrown into the lake of fire. And the reality is we, again, we have to remember they've been defeated, not yet destroyed. That's, that's coming, but they've already been defeated. Romans 16, 19 to 20 says for your, the report of your obedience has reached us all. Therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent and what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's coming. It's coming. And and interestingly enough, part of him knows and part of him thinks that he's still going to win, which is why he puts up the fight. But he's, he's, he doesn't stand a chance. It's not even close. 
I mean, when you think about it, when he's finally thrown into the lake of fire, an unnamed angel does it. Not this special archangel. It's not even the Holy Spirit or Jesus himself. An unnamed angel is able to subdue Satan and throw him into the lake of fire. So let's study now a little bit more about the demons and what they're doing. In, in the Gospels, as well as in the book of Acts, we read stories of people being possessed by demons, right? That's the story of Legion, the, the man who had so many demons inside of him, and he was ripping chains, and he was a wild man, and, and, and just living crazy down by the graveyard. There was a girl who was following Paul around and, and who could predict the future. And, and, and then there was all the times the disciples, when they were sent out in their pairs, how they were casting out demons. And so there's some debate about believers then. Can believers, Christians, be possessed by a demon? Now, possession speaks of ownership. To be possessed by a demon would have a demon residing within your spirit. And that's where God resides. And God doesn't share the rent. He doesn't share the living space with a demon. And so, so believers cannot be owned by a demon. They cannot be possessed by a demon because you and I have been bought with a price. They cannot reside within our spirit. We belong to God. However, the proper term is that you and I can still be demonized. We can still be harassed. We can still be attacked, even as believers. Now, how would I, how would that happen? How would I, so quote unquote, catch a demon? How would it, how would it come along? Well, some report, and I can't, I can't verify this, but some report listening to country music backwards is, is where most demons come from. I, I can't guarantee that, but that's, that's what I've heard. And it, it, sounds, it sounds legitimate to me. So avoid that one. But, but in all seriousness, it, they come often because we've invited them. Under this guise of, of something innocent, maybe as a spirit guide or, or as a friend, we can invite that. Or maybe if we were participating in, in some kind of witchcraft, either before or after salvation, or demonic activities, or, or things around the occult. And, and I've even heard of believers who've participated in weddings where they were offered off towards a demon or a warlock of some sort. Uh, demons often show up in the form of imaginary friends to little children. And it's incredible. Each of my children, they've, they've experienced a demon show up in their room when they were little children. And ironically, they all described the same demon with the same name. And, and it, was, it infuriated me to see the, the cowardness of this demon attacking this little child, my child, my baby. And it angered me. But what was so cool is how God flipped it. The God of redemption took the enemy's attack and flipped it on him because each time that happened, that was when those children accepted Jesus, where they prayed to have Jesus come live inside them. And so he's able to use even the demonic attacks against the demon for our benefit and for our good. But they're showing up as these imaginary children, these imaginary friends, because they're trying to create a bond. They're trying to create an attachment. And, and lastly, I, I don't have a verse for this one, but my experience has shown that, you know, particularly in the cases of sexual abuse in children, that that level of violation somehow introduces some kind of demonic attachment. And, and it's not that the, that child did anything or invited them in, but, but something about that, that sexual abuse, the violation, a demon saw an opportunity. 
And whether they were they were driving the sexual abuse or or what, I don't, I'm not sure. But my experience has been demons will attach themselves to people through that. And, and essentially what's happening is, is either you are giving permission actively or passively, or they're simply just trying to take advantage of the situation in the case of the sexual abuse, where that demon now has, has taken on the idea that they have some right to you. That they have, they have some belief that they have uh, 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 an ownership of you or, or this right to, to be involved or part of your life. And they've attached themselves now to you and to your thinking. And you might be thinking, well, why? Like, what would be the purpose? They, the, it, I can't lose my salvation if I'm going to heaven and I'm safe in there. Then why would they come and do that? Well, John 10, 10 says it this way, that the thief, the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's their mission statement. First, it is to prevent you from ever coming to Jesus for salvation, to, to utterly kill and destroy your, not just your, your soul, but that spirit, that your, your very being, that you'll never get to know Jesus. That's, that's its first job. And then when that fails and you do come to Jesus and now you're a believer, you're, you're a follower of Jesus, he doesn't give up. He still comes at you for a couple things. One, by hurting you, it takes you out of the game. It, it will somehow get you to, to disqualify yourself, uh, put you on the sidelines so that you can't you know, love other people. You won't allow that life of Jesus because you don't think you're good enough. So that shame and that, that sin or, or whatnot, trying to discredit you. But more importantly, hurting you hurt your father. Again, you want to hurt me, hurt my kids, hurt my babies, hurt my loved ones. And that will hurt me the most. And the enemy, who is a coward, won't attack God directly because he doesn't stand a chance. So he goes after those who are most precious to him, his children. And so how do they carry this out? Well, one of the things they do is they, they block the voice of God. We saw this again in, in Daniel, right? Daniel has this dream and it's a terrifying vision. It's an absolute, he wakes up in a cold sweat and he prays, God, what have I just seen? It's terrifying because he saw the end of the world. And he's like, God, interpret it. Tell me what I've seen. And in and, and the moment that prayer hit the throne, God dispatched an angel. And that angel showed up 21 days later. Now, it wasn't like, you know, the traffic was bad or the angel had a quarantine because he crossed boundaries, nothing like that. The moment that angel left, he got, he got interrupted. He got ambushed. He got into an attack. And this angel and this demon were fighting for three weeks until another angel, I believe it was Michael, maybe Gabriel, came along and took over the battle so that first angel can finally come and deliver the message to Daniel. I know there's so much stuff that I don't understand about that passage, but it happened. And so what we can see here is that the, the demonic will come and they will block the voice of God. And I've seen that in, in talking with people where, where they go to pray and all of a sudden everything just goes blank. Everything vanishes because the demon now is stepping in and blocking God speaking to them. And it's, it's works on two fronts. One, it prevents them from hearing the truth, that truth that sets us free, but it also begins to undermine the character of God. God doesn't hear me. God doesn't love me. God's abandoned me. I'm all alone. 
Or maybe what the demon's trying to do is control a person. I, I heard a story from a friend of mine. He, he met with his lady who she was the one that participated in the wedding to a warlock and she was a believer. But this warlock, this demon had control over her now. And because she'd given herself over to this warlock, this demon. And so she'd be walking down the street and the demon would see a guy and say, go sleep with him. And she would. She would just go have these one night stands with these complete strangers and then kind of wake up afterwards with his guilt and shame. And so she went, my friend, she said, I, I literally have just come from such an event. Please help me. Please set me free. And they uncovered it was a demon and how it all went down with her being married to him. And that's why that demon was, was controlling her. I, I personally wonder, and, and I, 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 that's all it is. It's just me speculating. I'm wondering. I have no evidence to prove this. Or it's just me speculating about that recent attack that we saw in that, on that, that Muslim family in London. Who this, this Christian man just, just seemingly violently ran them over. Now, there's, there's absolutely no justification for it, none whatsoever that you can come up with. But it sounded to me when I, when I read the report that it, this is a seemingly out of character. He had, he had um, Middle Eastern friends. He was laughing when he was arrested. Um, he, he, he had these, these intense bouts of anger at times. That all sit, it all fits this pattern of this demonic control. And, and if it wasn't demonic, and, and I'm not saying, it, again, I'm not saying it was, but if it wasn't, at the very least, it's an example of what it could look like, where just this demon suddenly takes over to carry out its violent, joyful pleasures of sin. Uh, there's been reports of, of demons tormenting a person through fear and intimidation. Martin Luther talked about that towards the end of his life, where he was regularly being harassed and attacked by demons. They may toy with people. It's perverted, but they, they toy with people for their own pleasure, their own gratification. Again, whether that be in the control or whether that just be with the tormenting them. They may literally kill you with, with edging, edging you on towards suicide or just torture you to the edge of death, but keep you alive so they can torture you longer. And then some, not all, but, but some of what we call mental health can be actually attributed to demonic. <clears throat> and that's just not my opinion. That's actually the opinion of medically trained doctors and psychiatrists who've, who've in treating people recognize this is simply mental health and others. And they recognize it as this is actually the demonic. It's, it's actually different. So how do we, how do we recognize what is the demonic then? Well, Number one, it manifests itself in, in many ways. And, and when it presents itself, there's very little doubt as to what's happening. So, you know, people will be acting out of character, this Jekyll and Hyde sort of thing, right? Where they're acting one way here and then suddenly very, very different, maybe very angry or, 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 or very, very sexual or very sinful in some way. They, they may see the demons, like literally see the, the demonic happening, these, these demon creatures moving around. The, the demons you're dealing with, they'll have a name. They're more than just an idea. They're more than just this, this vague concept. They're actual creatures. You may experience large gaps of time where, where suddenly you don't remember what happened and you forgot what happened and you sort of wake up and you have no, no memory, no recollection for what's happened in the last hour or two. 
I've heard accounts of where, where people are howling at the moon. They're acting strangely. They're, they're, remember the demon possessed man in, in the Bible had these great feats of strength and that may present itself. Or they might even have special spiritual powers to be able to tell the future like we saw in the, in, in the book of Acts with that girl who's following Paul. Again, it presents itself in a very spectacular way, really. This very demonic, very spiritual way. Now, I imagine people hearing that might get a little bit kind of freaked out and they might kind of get a little nervous, like, well, maybe I got a demon. And how do I know if I got a demon or not? There's a real simple test. And, and so I want to, I want to kind of put those fears to, to rest here, but what you can do is, is, is grab a trusted friend, a believer, someone who's, who's mature in their faith. And, and together, what you can do is you can pray to ask God to expose if there's been anything demonic in your life and anything demonic that is currently attached to you and anything that's currently demonizing you. And it will present itself. Either you'll, you'll see the demon, maybe, uh, maybe you'll hear something, you'll sense something's going on. Uh, maybe what you can do is, uh, is after you've prayed, have your friend read some portions of scripture, like the Psalms and so forth, large portions of scriptures, particularly the ones praising God. Uh, because it's been my experience that when you read that to the demon, they don't like it. They react strongly. They react negatively and they can't help it. It's like, it, it's like nails on a chalkboard to them, you know, times a hundred. It just absolutely infuriates them and irritates them, angers them. And, and so what that, what that's doing is, is it's causing those demons to face what's true and it, it exposes them. And once it is exposed, now you can deal with them. And fortunately, it's not like Hollywood, right? You know, if, if you, know, you think about how Hollywood talks about the demonic, there's always that nervous priest holding the cross and throwing the holy water and he's freaking out, begging the demon to go and that person's spinning around the room and so forth. It doesn't happen that way. And I say that personal experience here. I've, I've faced demons. I've talked to demons. They've, they've talked to me and told me some choice things. And it's not that way. It is a fight. It is a battle and it's real, but it's not that sensational battle that we've seen in Hollywood, right? Now, I'm not a big fan of all the rules I've read about spiritual warfare. Well, you have to say this and you have to do it this way and you even have to say it out loud and so forth. All, all those rules, I, I don't see that happening in scripture. I think what really what we need to understand is that it's actually fairly straightforward in how we deal with them because it's all about authority. The authority that God has given to you and me, and then confidently expressing that authority. So in Matthew 16 and verse 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You have been given authority over the demons, beloved. God's given to us this, this power in the person in the name of Jesus Christ that now you and I can command and we can cast out the demons. And so when I'm, when I'm working with someone who has been demonic, demonically attacked and demonized, that a demon has attached themselves to him, then, then what I do is I get that person to pray themselves. More than me pray to cast that demon out. If they were an unbeliever, I would do that. But when they're a believer, then I think it's important for them to pray for a couple of reasons. One, it, it allows them to discover the power and the authority that they have. That, that just because I'm a pastor, it doesn't give me any extra power and authority. 
that we are equal authority, equal power, because we have the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit. And so it, it encourages and strengthens their own faith. But the other reason is because that believer, or sorry, that demon has attached himself to a believer because it believes that the believer has given them permission. And they, the demons have said, I'm not leaving until they tell me to leave. And so it's important that that, that person prays themselves and commands that demon to leave. And even then, that demon's going to challenge the authority. So let me illustrate it to you this way. Uh, imagine there are two police officers. One, one police officer is the rookie. It's his first day on the job, right? Uniform all freshly pressed, right? He's got all the creases in all the right spots and everything fits and it's shiny and everything. And his first day on the job is he's got to go and, and look after a, a traffic intersection where the lights are down. And so he's going to control traffic. So he's there and he's got his bright, shiny Fox 40 whistle and his nice white gloves and everything. And he shows up and he blows the whistle, but he's scared. He's nervous. So he blows it very cautiously. It's a very low, quiet whistle. And he, please stop. What are the odds of traffic people, the cars listening to him? They're going to see it and go, uh, I'm not listening to you. They're going to look around and they're going to make their own choices. But now you send in the 25-year-old vet. Right. The guy who's got the coffee stains and the donut stains to prove that he's a 25 year old vet. And, you know, the uniforms rumpled and a bit messy and so forth. And he shows up with his, you know, a little bit rusted, you know, Fox 40 whistle. But he's got confidence and he blows the whistle hard and he stop in a very, very confident way. And what, what do the people do? They pay attention and they listen. Now, who's got more authority? It's the same. They've got the same authority, the rookie and the veteran. The difference is the veteran is confident and the rookie is not. And so the enemy is going to try to, to test how confident are you in your authority? And if you waver in any way, it's going to think, I don't have to leave. I'm going to stay here. But if you are confident and you command it, it will go. And sometimes you have, to, you have to invite angels to come and drag it away even. And sometimes you need other Christians to be praying for you at the same time. Remember those demons where, where the disciples came back and they said, Jesus, we couldn't cast out these demons. And, demon, and Jesus said, some, some are harder. Some require more prayer and fasting. And so I understand that to be that, that you may not be able to just handle it on your own. Some you can, and that's great. And then there's others where you get together other people. And they will come and they will pray for you and they will, they will help you. And I want you to know, if that's your case, you have people here ready to pray for you. Myself, the other elders, absolutely. But I know there are more people in New Life. Because when I look at New Life, I see warriors. I see strong men and women of God who are ready to battle on your behalf. Who are fighting for you and will fight for you and with you in prayer. And so all they're waiting for is you to reach out. And, and this church will come running. And that's why I'm so proud of New Life, how much they're willing to, to love and support one another. Well, <clears throat> I'm looking at my notes and I'm looking at the time. I think we're going to stop here. So the rest of it, the, you know, the world and the flesh, it doesn't matter. We don't have to talk about that. I'm kidding. We're going to talk about that next time. So we'll just bleed into the next time. But I, I want to kind of leave on a, on a positive note. And, and that, that positive note being is, that the battle that we fight is not based on your power. 
Again, remember that authority, it's in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. That, that phrase, name and authority, literally means the power, right? Think about that, again, that police officer, when they say stop in the name of the law, what they're saying is in the authority and the power that the law has been given in this dominion, I command you to stop. And they've got that authority. Or I can arrest you in the name of the law. They've been given that authority. You and I have been given authority, power, the very power of Jesus Christ. That whatever we bind in heaven, we bound on earth. That we have power and authority over the demonic. We have power and authority over, over Satan. And we don't need to be afraid of him. In fact, the Holy Spirit comes in John 16. He comes to convict us of three things. Right? Most people recognize the first one is sin. And that's true. When you and I blow it, or when we're not trusting in Jesus, or before you trusted in Jesus for the first time, he comes to convict us of sin. And thank God he does. Doesn't condemn us, but he points out that what we've done here is sin. The next thing he does is he convicts us of our righteousness. And we talk about that a lot here at New Life. Convincing you and I that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Not because of our behavior, not because of our performance, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. And he convinces us, convicts us, reminds us of that truth because we need it in this world. To fight against that voice of shame. That you are loved and approved. But finally, the Holy Spirit's come to convict you and I of judgment. But not your judgment. No, no, no. The judgment of the evil one, that the evil one has been judged. He has been defeated. And so he comes to remind us of that. That you don't have to fear the demons. They're like the Wizard of Oz. Big booming voice, little man behind the curtain. And I don't say that to, to say they don't have any power. They have great power. But not compared to Jesus. Our Lord is bigger. Our Lord has won the battle. And, and he has defeated Satan on the cross, and soon he will crush him under our feet. And we look forward to that day. In the meantime, we fight. In the meantime, we stand firm, holding the truth of what belongs to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for what you've done and the power that you've given to us the freedom that we have now in you and your name, that we do not have to give in to Satan and the demons. And yet we recognize that they attack at times. We recognize at times they will come against us. They'll try to wear us down psychologically, whether it be false flag attacks, whether it be terrorism, nightmares, harassment, whether it be sabotaging the church or, or mistrusting church leaders and so forth. We recognize that there is a war going on but it's a war that we fight by your might, by your strength, by your power. And that's why we have victory. You're the one that leads us in victory, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be receded. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.